many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning, good morning. It's Wednesday, the 5th of August, and this is the show with all of your breaking money news, Money for Nothing. And this is me, Richard Harris. Your business headlines this morning. Apple shares continue to decline. Disney profit rises, but disappoints analysts. Greek banks fall a further 30%. And the Irish-based pharmaceutical company Shire makes an offer for fellow drug company Baxalta for a cool US $30 billion US dollars. And in other news, George Soros hands his most loyal lieutenant, Steve Besant, $2 billion to start his own hedge fund. Besant is said to have made the Soros family office $10 billion over the last four years, and the two were key characters uh, in breaking the pound in 1992. Today we'll canter through last night's markets and catch up on the earnings announcements that affected Wall Street last night. Steve Wang of Reorient Group is back with us to walk us through the markets. Then global technology provider Interlinks, Oliver Manosovich will tell us more about mergers and acquisitions, not just last quarter, but in the coming one. And our regular Wednesday guest host is a man who's forgotten more about the investment fund industry than I ever knew. Step forward, Stuart Allcroft. How are you this morning? Yeah, well, it's nice for us to both be on the programme at the same time, isn't it? I know, we managed to avoid each other for now. Uh, very successfully, I thought. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've uh, been thinking overnight about this... Um, uh, this rap that the trader got in London, 14 years. It seems yeah. a tad harsh, don't you think? Well, they did say it was going to be to set an example and given that they've got another, I think, 24 or 25 people in the frame and there was one name actually taken out of the frame um, overnight. Uh, but I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. From what we learn, there are a lot of more people going uh, to, to be um, wrapped over the knuckles, probably incarcerated in some form. And for many people, it's probably not not before time, they would be saying. <laughs> but it, you can't get over the impression that maybe they're going for the middle ones. You know, in China, they talk about the tigers and the flies. Yeah. Um, this is something in the middle, I do. Well, well y- yes, it is. But bear in mind, this is just about the first individual that has now been uh, incarcerated. And um, the companies have been penalised, but through heavy, heavy fines. Um, but it, at the end of the day, people are, are those that have caused it. And, you know, it'd be quite interesting to see not just as the frontline individuals, but their managers, whether they get uh, uh, taken in. Yes, yes. Too. It looks as like if they were, they were there when the music stopped. Yes, exactly. Anyway, moving on to news. Uh, in a good sign for struggling U.S. manufacturing, new orders for U.S. factory goods rebounded strongly in June, as the U.S. Commerce Department said new orders for manufacturing goods increased 1.8% after declining in May. The strong dollars weighed on manufacturing, which accounts for about 12% of the U.S. economy. The dollar rose and Treasury bonds retreated as Dennis Lockhart, who's the president of the Atlanta Fed, was quoted as saying he was ready to support the September U.S. interest rate rise. The 10-year yield now is now at 2.22%. The S&P fell five points last night to 2,093. The take-heavy Nasdaq index was almost flat at 5,105, despite a bruising from the fall in the Apple share price. Europe's main stock markets closed flat on Tuesday with London's FTSE 100, slipping just a tad to finish at 6,686. While in the Eurozone, the CAC 40 in Paris fell also a small amount to 5,112. Frankfurt's DAX rose 0.1% to close at 11,456. Stuart, you've just come back from Europe um, 
as have I, I got the impression the economies didn't actually look too bad. Uh, very, very good, I thought. Um, good tourist numbers, obviously, coming around Europe. And, and the positive in, um, vibes, if you like, are all there. Mind you, I was there in June, uh, oh, July, I should say, and the weather was pretty good too. Uh, and it that does colour your to, thinking. It does, yeah. does colour the thinking. It makes you feel a lot better. But also for the visitors, that's, that's true. Well, the bull market isn't really continuing in the oil market. Brent crudes continue to tumble, settled now down below the $50 level, and a few moments ago is trading at around $49.40. Hong Kong stocks closed flat on Tuesday with investors encouraged by Beijing's curbs on short selling. The Hang Seng ended five points down to 24,406 on lowish turnover 75 billion Hong Kong dollars. The Shanghai Composite jumped 3.7% to 3,756 after the stock exchanges announced new rules restricting that short selling. Turnover remains high at 464 billion yuan. The euro is trading a fraction lower at 109, the pounds at uh, $1.56. And the Hong Kong dollar is trading at uh, $12.07, Hong Kong dollars to the pound. Apple continues to fall off the tree with the stock dropping for the 10th time in 11 days, losing 3.2% to $114.60, a six-month low. Trading volume rose to more than double the average for 2015. Apple's latest drop came after iPhone sales the last quarter came in a bite-sized lower uh, below expectations. Julie Hyman of Bloomberg fills in the gaps. Apple, the stock is falling for the fifth straight session, down one and a half percent. And there's not really a lot of fundamental news driving the trading that we are seeing in Apple. But take a look at my Bloomberg terminal at the year to date in Apple, because what we saw yesterday, this is the 200 day moving average. It's just a momentum indicator that some traders watch. And you can see yesterday, this is the yellow line. We fell below it. So we're even more deeply below it now. It went 471 sessions without falling below that indicator. The last time it fell below it, though, it then uh, saw a big rally. And then the green line you see here is the correction that we have now seen in Apple shares. This was back on February 23rd. That's when Apple was at a record. Since then, it is down more than 10%, which is the definition of a correction. This, so because of its importance to the markets, because of its weight, this is something that a lot of folks are watching. Well, Walt Disney Company reported earnings that beat analysts' estimates on strong box office and theme park results. Sales were up, but missed analysts' forecasts because of the weak euro at Disneyland, Paris. The shares rose half a percent in New York, and Disney's actually gained 29% this year, the best stock in the Dow Jones Index in 2015. Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney illustrates how the entertainment industry is changing. Yeah, I think the real question for investors is, you know, for all these big media companies is, listen, Customers are cutting the cord. We know that uh, on the margin, the pay TV uh, bundle is really fraying. And if you're the pay TV bundle ensures that everybody gets paid, all the cable networks out there, all the broadcast networks. And if the cable bundle is fraying and consumers, particularly millennials, are getting more of their content over the Internet, uh, whether it's through an OTC service or like Netflix, the, the issue is they're leaving the pay TV bundle. That puts all the big content companies at risk on the margin, including Disney. The flip side, the bullish case for Disney is they are less exposed to that concern because they have the theme park business. They have the studio, both of which are doing very well. Well, moving back to Asia, investors in India have been spooked recently by the government's proposal to set up a new committee to set monetary policy. Investors feared that the central bank would lose its independence to set interest rates, which now effectively rest exclusively with the central bank governor, in whom the market has rested much confidence. Well, we have the man himself here, uh, not uh, on the line, but in his press conference, uh, as he tried yesterday to allay fears about the proposed changes. 
We've already done a lot internally in the past, uh, in, in my term and before, to institutionalize the process, including having scheduled meetings with different constituencies before the policy decision, having serious discussions with internal staff based on incoming economic data and based on our model, and speaking with the government to obtain its viewpoint. The final policy is usually a consensus arrived at by the governor, the deputy governor in charge of monetary policy, and the executive director in charge of monetary policy. But ultimately, the responsibility is the governor's. Going forward, there are at least three virtues of taking the decision away from the governor and giving it to a committee. First, a committee can represent different viewpoints, and studies show that its decisions are typically better than in individuals. Second, spreading the responsibility for the decision can reduce the internal and external pressure that falls on an individual. Third, a committee will ensure broad monetary policy continuity when any single member, including the governor, changes. So we have been enthusiastic supporters of the idea of a committee. So don't worry, it's all right. Well, <laughs> it's now uh, 8.12 and uh, we're going to go over to Steve Wang in uh, Reorient Group. Steve's the research director there and it's good to see you in the studio this morning. Hi, good morning. Uh, Steve, uh, we'll just carry on a little bit of what we were talking about yesterday at the end of the show was HSBC. Um, what do you think of those figures? I think the figures are okay. They're not, not that exciting. I think the banks in Hong Kong and the, as well as the stand chart, they are not doing that well. Uh, customer you know, loyalty is on a wane, basically. You don't really see a lot of exciting points from these big major banks. And, but uh, it looked as if most of their earnings were still coming really out of Hong Kong, 80%, I think, out of Asia mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah, I mean, that, this is where the money is, right? We have seen a very, very strong stock market rally most, for, the, for the better part of the first half, I should add. And, but that, that has generated a lot of money inflow into this part of the world. But I think, you know, the second half of this year may be a little bit more different. Mm. Okay, let's move to China. We had a pretty good move yesterday mm -hmm. in the markets. Uh, uh, and in the newsroom this morning, they were saying, why is it up? Because government is buying. I think that's a very, very simple answer. And, and, and that is the truth. And I think, you know, what, what has the market done since, uh, you know, about a month ago? I think that pretty much nothing. You know, the stock index has tried to rally, but has start, start failed. Uh, several t attempts to break above 4,000. So it, it, on, on, on certain episodes, episodes, it just slides right down to 36,000. But I think that at the 200-day line that uh, I think the, the analyst about Apple commented earlier today, the 200-day line for the Shanghai this Composite, is a moving average this is a moving average line. It's a technical line that traders look at. And that line has been very, very well supported or guarded by the, by the government funds. So we know that the government has given as much as 200 billion RMB into the, into the funds. They've subscribed the funds to buy the market. So we shouldn't be that pessimistic on the downside. In fact, I see that there's some pretty good upside, big upside from where we are right now. So yesterday was a, a little bit of a blip. We know that the turnover is not doing well, which is one of the main problems that we look at. It's been, I think it's been uh, below one trillion yuan for three days in a row. And that's not, that's not good. But uh, I think... But that trillion was pretty high if you look historically. Of course, yeah. but I mean... But I think in the context of the last 24 months, 
below one trillion is not that good. Steve Stewart here. Um, yes. We know that the Chinese government have got about a four trillion U.S. dollars of foreign exchange reserves mm-hmm. now. Do you think there's going to be a, a prospect that they'll start bringing them back into China to support the market? And, and that presumably have a consequent impact on where they're bringing it back from. Uh, that's, a, that's a common discussion and that's a very, very de- debated issue these days. But actually, the, the fact the, the I don't really see the, the Chinese government want to do that. I think they could, there are other ways to do about it. I mean, the foreign exchange reserve, they probably want to use it to invest more offshore. I mean, there's still the going out theme of, uh, of the Chinese government. And so that, there's a, that's a better outlet for the use of the Chinese foreign exchange reserve. They can still, uh, you know, China has not started any any source, any types of quantitative easing. They've just started to give a little bit of money to the banks in, in terms of bank lending. But of course, we've seen that a lot of the a lot of the rate cuts, triple R cuts, have seen flown into the financial market. So the question right now is. The regulators obviously want to support the market. They want to support also the real economy. But they are very afraid that a lot of the financial resources have been flown into the financial market as opposed to the real economy. So the second half of this year, in my opinion, is going to be really focusing on infrastructure or uh, improving people's livelihood through local government spending. That is why we have seen that local government are starting to raise a lot of uh, money through Bond issuances, they have exhausted the first one trillion yuan of uh, debt to bond swap program. They're onto the second trillion. But Steve, isn't this the problem that happened before, you know, in terms of the fact that the local authorities raised so much money on the markets mm-hmm. in order to build infrastructure projects that they've actually ended up, a lot of them going bust, and now we've got this process by which the government's trying to uh, consolidate a lot of that local government debt. Isn't it just going down the same old path? Chinese government is the world's biggest developer. You have to take that as some uh, in, a, in a good context. You know, Chinese government has to develop its economy. It has to develop its infrastructure and help out people in their rural areas and in the local governments. We're not ever not everybody living in Beijing, Shanghai, or Shenzhen, and Guangzhou, right? So, the government that in the old days they were created through the shadow banking system. They're trying to make that more transparent, more clear through the bond process. Now you have the rating agency get involved and we know they are a big pain in the butt. You know, so so hopefully that you know the process will optimize. Of course, to build something with no money you have to borrow. And that that's begin with with the question about credit. But uh, I used to be a credit analyst and I know very well that you know people do deserve good credit if they have a good prospect in the future. And I think the, generally people may not believe in the short-term prospect of what the stock market might do, but people believe that, you know, you look at what China has done and what the Chinese people can do, people are optimistic about the long-term future. And that is why the local government bond yield has come has been issued at very, very attractive rates. Mm. I mean, these are rates not that, that, not that I very much feel very comfortable, but they've been done. And I think the banks are also being asked to buy up those bonds, to subscribe to those bonds. Now, that's, a, that's another point, is that the way the Chinese government is looking ready to support the market is yeah. not necessary to go in with their own money, a little bit like the Hong Kong government did when it bought the market and um, uh, in days gone past, but to try and do it through the banks, to convince banks to buy the shares and the market to convince brokers and, mm-hmm. and other institutions like this. But doesn't it weaken those companies further out? because they're taking assets on their books that they would normally not want to hold. 
You mean the banks, I guess. Yeah. I guess. Uh, theoretically, yes, because the banks are asked to take out a little bit more of the bad stuff, or maybe take a little bit of the you know maturing loan that they don't want to mature, or, or it needs to be paid back. But they're ex- extending that. However, the, the question is if they can do it across across the board with every banks under the control, then the whole situation get pushed out, and that will mean. The whole economy will will have time to catch up. Take a breath, mm. right? That's so. That is a different. I think that's. A, in, I think that actually might work. With, with the government buying so heavily into the market, at some point they're going to need to find an exit strategy, aren't they? Uh, and, and what will that be? Um, like tracker fund in Hong Kong, will they start setting up uh, uh, publicly available ETFs or um, or know. even something like MPF, right? Because I think the well, Chinese, a lot of it's pension fund money. Yes, yeah. So I think mm. the Chinese. Retail or the mass market, by and large, are still very well underinvested in stock market. Mm. I mean, they they really the Chinese people do just have uh, access to the bank savings account. Little have uh, dipped into the stock market. Uh, a lot of people are locked out of the property market because things are so expensive. So, how do you accumulate people from the grassroots level? Level. So, it, it, the best way to start from the blue chips. And look at the Shanghai. I was looking at the Shanghai Composite PE multiple across different sector. You can see that the financial sector and the blue chip sector are, which is what the government is buying, are very very low. It's like less than ten, less than ten, about nine times. While things like agriculture, believe it or not, is it's over 100 times PE. Still. Because yeah. actually there's, I mean, the market is very fragmented. There's a lot of things that are extremely cheap. I mean, the big bulge bracket banks, SLE stuff, right? And then those are cheap things that we think that, you know, will, will do very well. It's the state-owned discount, isn't it, that comes in. Anyway, Steve, I uh, very much appreciate you coming in. I hope you'll stay for the traditional uh, Money for Nothing <laughs> photograph. And Absolutely. Uh, our listeners will be seeing that on the Facebook page, the uh, <laughs> RTHK Radio 3 Money for Nothing Facebook page uh, in the very near future. It's currently 8.21. Something for yourself, something for your loved ones, something you have longed for. All these products are brought to you by retail professionals. From sales to store management, from inventory management to purchasing and marketing, all these people support our daily lives. You can be one of them. One industry, unlimited prospects. Retail has it all. For details, visit retail.org.hk. Well, debt issue to fund managers and uh, for mergers and acquisitions has reached a record high, and companies have raised 290 billion US dollars of debt to buy competitors this year, almost triple the same level in 2014. The first two quarters of 2015 have recorded some huge merger and acquisition deals. Shell and British energy company BG Group at 70 billion, uh, Kraft and Heinz made the fourth biggest food company, and today's news of a bid by Shire for Bexalta for 30 billion. Quarter one alone this year saw more mergers and acquisitions than any other period in this decade. Uh, Mergers provide companies with an opportunity to grow and create a return for shareholders. And at the moment, uh, debt is pretty cheap, so they can do that. 
Well, we've now got solutions, content and technology provider Intralink um, who are forecasting a 9 to 14% increase in M&A volumes for the full year this year. And to tell us more, we're very lucky to have in our Queensway studio their regional director, Oliver Milosevic. Uh, how are you doing, Oliver? Hey, I'm good. Good morning. Good. Well, thanks for coming in. Um, first of all, why didn't you tell us about Intralink, what your company does? Because it was far too complicated for a bare of simple brain like me to really figure out. It's pretty easy. So um, we are a service provider that get en- gets engaged when companies are trying to sell an asset that could be from a whole business up to a smaller whatever factory and to run a due diligence process uh, to give buyers access into their documents in a protected way. They utilize our service. And yeah. So you essentially work for the company in terms of getting all their due diligence information together for buyers. Correct. But we are basically an infrastructure provider. So we're not taking a look at the content. Okay, well, tell us about your deal flow predictor. I mean, first of all, why do we need to predict M&A? Um, I guess um, everybody's um, concerned about the future and would like to get a sneak peek on what's coming up. And um, basically, through the nature of our business, we're able to um, take a look in advance because clients engage with us um, six to nine months prior any type of announcement of a deal. So that gives us a leading indicator, and um, it's perceived very well by the market so far. And we keep producing that for the last five years every quarter to look a little bit ahead. You're always acting on behalf of the vendor, is that right? Correct, the seller. Yes, and so um, clearly you'll have a better idea of what's going on in the market from their perspective. They want to get rid of an asset. How often would it be the case that they're wanting to get rid of an underperforming asset? Therefore, what you've got to do is to sort of ramp it up and make it look better. Is that, is that right? <laughs> no, no, we're not, we're not engaged in that process. I would say, therefore, they have their bankers and other advisors. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, we're more on the infrastructure side. So we, we're just tracking more on a quantitative basis. And um, I wouldn't always refer to mergers and acquisitions as something to get rid of an underperforming asset. It might just be that you want to get rid of a lucrative side business Mm -hmm. where you feel you can um, um, monetize a high premium on and then invest the money into your core business uh, to make Uh, those. And then so who typically will use the services apart from the vendor company? Who who, who will access the information that you provide? Everybody who's interested in buying that asset. Mm -hmm. And And that means the investment banks or? Investment banks, uh, financial sponsors like mm. PE firms, uh, strategic buyers, competitors mm. of those companies. The fund management industry generally, is that? Uh, fund managers uh, more on the private equity side because they are uh, working on buyouts and uh, many of our transactions that we have are not uh, public transactions. They're actually with private companies who are not listed. Um, that's the majority of the uh, amount of transactions. And that's also a reason why it's interesting because it's giving a more uh, in, insight in that private sector. In, certainly in Europe and the US, we've seen a massive increase in the number of M&A transactions, very much so in, well, Richard mentioned oil and gas, but also in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, First of all, why have we seen so much there? Because these are really quite big numbers that are being spent. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, I'd ask, you know, it, can we see a, any replication of that coming over to Asia? 
So I'd say the markets are uh, mainly different, and I would like to differentiate when we look into uh, the numbers. Um, the volumes in the U.S. and in EMEA are obviously significantly up, but actually the volumes in APEC are even higher inc- or increasingly faster. Uh, where we see then a difference, the values in the U.S. and Europe are higher than what we see in mm-hmm. APEC. Mm-hmm. And the drivers, uh, I would say, on a global basis is cheap money, uh, as it's driving many, many things at the, market, uh, at the moment in the markets. Um, and in Asia, specifically, uh, governmental uh, influence in different regions. So China, for example, we see restructuring transactions for their SOEs. Um, in other areas like South Korea, they're changing regulation to actually make it easier to run M&A processes. Um, this is being referred to the so-called One-Shot Act that is in the works for now quite some while. They basically want to make sure that the um, capital markets and um, those types of transactions are being uh, run more efficiently and their companies have access to outside assets and outside companies have access to corporate assets in Korea, yeah. for example. Well, Oliver, you certainly uh, seem to be in a, a good and booming sector, the M&A sector. Thank you very much for coming in today. It's uh, Oliver Milosevic, who's the regional director of Interlinks uh, in uh, Hong Kong. Um, just looking at the market opening for today. Most of the markets are down a touch. Um, Australia's down half a percent, Seoul's down a fifth, and the Nikkei's down a fifth. So not much action there yet. Um, I want to leave a little bit of time, Stuart, just maybe a minute or so to talk about funds as you're the fund expert. And um, just before people sort of seem to start going away on holiday, we obviously had the uh, mutual fund recognition plan uh, that came through. It was uh, launched in a, uh, a blaze of publicity on the 1st of July, and since then we've heard very little. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, well, I, I suspect that why we've heard so little is because all the companies that want to participate in mutual recognition for funds have now begun to submit their applications. They need to go through the process of approval either by CSRC in China or by the SFC in Hong Kong. That can take uh, a few weeks or even a few months, depending on the complications involved. And um, reasonably, I would expect that the first funds would actually get announced uh, as approved for the purpose sometime during the middle of August, following which we'll start to see some activity. And, uh, you know, six to eight weeks from from launch date for the first money to move across uh, I think is quite reasonable. It's the same sort of situation we had for Stock Connect. What's your, what's your gut feel of how it's going to go? You know, Stock Connect wasn't particularly successful at first, and then the Chinese authorities tweaked the rules, and suddenly it became really quite workable. Is, is yes, the same thing here? it's a good question, Richard. Uh, um, yes, and Stock Connect, I think we were over-ambitious for the results of that when it launched. I think um, for, for mutual recognition, it will take a little while. But bear in mind that uh, the Hong Kong funds industry for the last two or three years now has had more or less around uh, a quarter to a third of its sales being made to mainland investors. So they've had access to these types of products mm. for quite some time. Great. Stuart, well, thank you very much for, You're welcome, Richard. for that wisdom. That's uh, Stuart Allcroft, who's chairman of City Trust uh, in our Queensway office. Thank you again for joining us on Money for Nothing today. I'm Richard Harris, and this is the weather. It'll fine and it'll be very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees in the urban areas. Light winds. The outlook remaining very hot in the next couple of days. And now the news read by Samantha Butler. 
Aviation experts are due to determine today whether a piece of plane found in the Indian Ocean belongs to missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. Radio Australia's George Roberts reports from Kuala Lumpur. The Malaysian Transport Ministry here in Kuala Lumpur is waiting for official confirmation that the wing component found last week is from flight MH370. Aviation experts and the ministry have already indicated it's from a Boeing 777, the same model as MH370. The plane was last tracked over the Indian Ocean in March of last year instead of its intended flight path from Malaysia to China. The debris was found on Réunion Island, east of Africa, and transferred to France where international investigators are to analyse it today. The authorities in North Korea have released a video of a Canadian preacher in which he confesses to committing crimes against the state. Reverend Hyun Su Lim was arrested in Pyongyang in February while on a regular visit to the country where he's helped set up an orphanage. The film shows him apparently reading a script admitting defaming North Korea. Russia has submitted a renewed claim for vast regions in the Arctic. It wants the United Nations to recognise that more than a million square kilometres of the polar seabed belongs to Moscow. Russia lodged a similar bid for the resource-rich territory in 2001, but that was rejected because of insufficient evidence. It's had an interest in the region for years. Speaking after a defence ministry meeting in 2013, President Putin referred to the strategic significance of the Arctic. I ask that particular attention be paid to the deployment of infrastructure and military units in the Arctic. Russia is increasing its efforts to develop this promising region. It is returning to it. It should have all the necessary